you go to the grocery store, you get your cart, and you're ready to check out. And there's a few different things you encounter when you check out. One is like you go through the express lane and there's the long line and then there's like the four different people who are checking people out as you go through, right? Or you go scan the like set of folks that can check you out if you have more than 15 items and you go pick the shortest line and then cross your fingers and you watch everybody else go faster than you. But there's actually math behind that. The most efficient way to handle a big list of things, a large queue, is to have multiple people taking from a single queue. That's why the express lanes are set up that way. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Hayes Davis. Hayes is the CEO and founder of Gradient Works, where they are creating the CRO operating system. And in our conversation today, we talk about the concept of revenue orchestration. And we dig into why companies are perhaps too quick to blame reps for being unproductive, but then don't examine whether they've orchestrated a system and process that enables reps to be effective. Hayes and I also dive into his method for evaluating the potential, revenue potential of accounts. And it's all based on timing and fit. And we get into a discussion of his quadrant, using timing and fit, that anyone can quickly use to evaluate the potential of an opportunity and use it to make better decisions about where and when to invest your limited sales time. Now, do all the accounts you're selling to reside in what Hayes calls the good place? Well, you'll want them to. So all that and much, much more coming up before we get to Hayes. I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Hayes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're joining us from where today? From sunny Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. Yeah. So, yeah, sort of pre-tornado season. <laughs> That's right. Post uh, post snowpocalypse season. So we yes. had our uh, um, we had some pretty cold weather. Did you have to boil water? Were you affected by uh, that? Yeah, we had uh, we had that whole thing. We had about three days with no electricity, and then boiling water for about a week. Uh, it was uh, it was very interesting. I would say we're not typically equipped for that type of uh, that type of weather here. That type of. Uh developing country conditions yes yeah <laughs> uh yeah most of the time i will say uh we have uh we have running water we have electricity, <laughs> have electricity. it's, it's almost always there yeah. yeah yeah right at the top of the top of the scale perfect mm -hmm. so tell us a bit about gradient your company yeah, so uh, Gradient Works is uh, relatively new, uh, all things considered. Uh, we've been around for, gosh, about nine months now. And uh, it's really born out of our experience running go-to-market teams um, over the last uh, decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, and so really what we're, the, the problem we're focused on initially is one of the problems that I think is is really misunderstood and undervalued in revenue organizations. And that's the, uh, the idea of ownership. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I think we, 
we miss when we think about how we're building a revenue organization at scale is thinking about, okay, who is responsible for what opportunity, what lead, what account, when throughout the customer lifecycle. And it's actually Mm -hmm. such an important thing conceptually that we don't even talk about it as ownership or assignment in a lot of cases. We talk about it by proxy. We talk about it as uh, territories or customer segmentation or something like that. But when you think about- Account list, right, yeah. Yeah, you know, your, your book, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have kind of all these names for it. But when you're thinking about what a, what a CRO or a VP of sales needs to be thinking about in a relatively high velocity B2B sales motion, a big part of their job is designing and, uh, and managing how uh, reps are assigned to different parts of the sales cycle. Um, mm-hmm. And so I know... You know, I think you've had a, a background where you've done a lot of enterprise sales, for example. I saw a post of yours on LinkedIn the other day where you mentioned, you know, like you don't do an enterprise deal by yourself, right? You right. bring in a lot of other folks to do that deal. And so a lot of the design of your organization is about understanding um, who else needs to come in to that deal? Who needs to be assigned? Do I need a, an, an SE? Do I need, a, you know, some product overlay or something like that, as well as, kind of staging things along the customer life cycle. You know, often an inbound will have a BDR attached to them at first. That person will do some qualification. They'll go to an AE. That person will go, and then ultimately, if you close the deal, they go to an AM or a CSM. There's all these different stages that, right. that folks go through. And um, one of the things that that I've seen in these organizations is that there really needs to be a way to start thinking about that problem holistically and ultimately to start optimizing that problem for the productivity and velocity of your entire organization. Um, and I think it's a fundamental part of how your organization works. Okay, so if somebody's not doing that, what's occurring? What are the what are the symptoms of, of not sure. doing this you described? So what I'll say is this is one of those things where, you know, if you ask any organization, if you're assigning people to accounts or opportunities or whatever, sure, they'll say, yes, we are, right? But what they're often not doing is optimizing it. Um, and so here's here's an example that I see. You know, we've mm-hmm. um, in our beta programs uh, for our assignment uh, product, uh, we've worked with um, a number of companies that have you know a really good problem, which is that they have a lot of inbounds, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you got a lot of inbounds. One of your big challenges is how do you ensure that your BDRs who are you know, probably working those inbounds initially for qualification, how do you ensure that they're actually um, using their time appropriately, right? Um, one of the things that I think a lot about is, is sales velocity, which I think uh, I've, I've heard you call sales productivity, you know, basically dollar per time, right? Yeah, um, right. Dollars per unit of time. Um, I think it's one of the most fundamental things uh, that you need to be thinking about. And for, let's say a BDR team, Right. If you're inundated with inbounds, one of your biggest challenges is going to be how do I actually focus my time on the right opportunities that are that are coming to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one of the symptoms of misallocation or poor assignment is often when you start seeing that BDR team, for example, um, start to miss their KPIs while still having really high activity levels. Right. They're mm-hmm. reaching out, they're doing stuff, but in the end, it's not really converting. And that could be you know, a problem with your ICP or something like that. But in a lot of cases, what it is, is that you're not keeping them focused on um, 
what I think of as, as the good place. If you think of like a, a quadrant. Um, yeah, I want you to explain that because, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting concept you have, which is that, you know, two primary factors you're taking into consideration in, in terms of evaluating, uh, let's say, the worthiness of an opportunity at any point in time is, is you call fit and timing. Yeah. So fit on the uh, y-axis, right, and timing on the x-axis? Yeah. So, I mean, um, not to get too, like, you know, consultant-y about it. We're not a consulting company, but, you know, consultants love quadrants, right? Um, but, right. Uh, you know, when you think about um, – I think there's two ways you need to be thinking about um, any opportunity. Um, number one is uh, this idea of fit. How closely do they hew to your ICP, right? How likely are they to be a good, um, a good candidate for your product and service? Um, and so, you know, if you think about that on the y-axis, right? Okay, a very good, uh, a very good candidate's going to be up high, and a very bad one's going to be down low, right? And then the other thing you need to think about is timing. Um, are they actually in market? for what you're selling, right? Um, it's, you know, you think about the standard qualification questions we ask, right? You know, um, one of those is always about timing, right? Do you have right. a, a thing you need to do right now? Um, and so if you think about timing as the x-axis, they're either, you know, not interested at all, or they're just kicking the tires, or this is like a, you know, everything's on fire and they must solve this problem. If you can keep your reps focused on those opportunities within your system that are a really good fit and have really, you know, critical timing, then they're going to spend most of their time delivering higher sales velocity, more dollars per time, right? What happens a lot of times is when a, when a rep gets inundated um, or overwhelmed in some way, and by the way, this doesn't just happen at the beginning of the sales cycle, this can happen in the middle of uh, a sales cycle with your closers, for example, they could have too many demos that are coming in that are poorly qualified for whatever pro you know, whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when they start to get inundated, everybody reaches sort of a saturation point, right? And what I've seen is is rep behavior um, starts to get a little bit more random at that point, or or just reactive. Um, you know, whatever pops up next is the thing that they they focus on. They spend right? time right. Yeah. And I think so to me, this is an example of if you're building your systems around the reps appropriately. And when I say system, I mean it in the like systems theory kind of sense, not just like a technical system, but sort of the socioeconomic, yeah. you know, like all of the things that go into an actual um, uh, a system. Uh, not a piece of technology, but a right. Not a piece of technology. People, process, technology, all that right. good stuff. Right. Um, and all that works together. Um, you know, it, you want to build your systems so that you're helping to enable your reps to focus, right? If your system is just designed to deliver, you know, whatever as fast as possible, um, what you're going to do is ultimately hurt the reps' focus. You're going to hurt sales velocity, right? Um, and so that's that's one of the ways that that we think about that. And so one of the sort of corollaries for that, and I think that uh, that a lot of um, you know, revenue systems don't take into account is, is things like capacity management for sales reps, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need to think about, um, you need to really think book size. You need to think about whether they're able to Let's focus stop for a second. Yeah, and define for people you're calling book. I mean, sure. it could be a territory, it could be a list of accounts, it could be their patch, whatever 
yep. it's it's what they're sort of the potential of what they're working on. Correct. Yeah. So it's the um, you know I would uh, I'm a this may come through, I don't know, but I, I'm a, I'm a technologist that fell in love with revenue systems, right? I, I've come yeah. to this from maybe a slightly different perspective from some people. And so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, the way I kind of look at it is it's, it's the, the queue of things that you're working on currently that are kind of in your, you know, primary memory, if you will. Right. Like the idea yeah. is like, these are, these are the things I'm super focused yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's the, so when I talk about the book, one of the reasons I use that term as opposed to like your patch or your territory is I actually think that um, in many cases for efficient operation of these systems, um, you know, uh, the geographic like patch slash territory model is actually um, detrimental. Um, so I, I tend to think about it as like, what do you, what do you own and what are you responsible for at mm-hmm. this moment right. in time, which may or may not correlate to a set of zip codes. No, rarely does these days. Anyway, yeah, I, you know, it, that's true. I wish it were more true. I, I you know, <laughs> as part of what we've done uh, with Gradient Works is we've is we've gone through initial product development and working on our beta. Currently, you know, I've had probably a hundred conversations with CROs and and um, uh, and ops leaders in these in sales organizations, and certainly nothing close to the. 900 plus conversations that you've had with your podcast and and counting. Uh, But, um, you know, one of the things I I hear time and again, even at like a, a, you know, what you would think of as a fairly new SaaS company that doesn't Mm -hmm. really have any kind of geographic specificity to the product they're selling. It's it's the default. People still organize their teams in a lot of cases around um, this really this outdated idea that geography matters a whole heck of a lot in most of these B two B sales processes. Yeah, which you, you wonder why that's the case, right? Because maybe it's just as you said a, a construct they're accustomed to, to dealing with. But as we more move into away from leads and more into account based, yeah, there's less sense to that. I mean, I I couldn't agree more, and I think it's it's. It's actually inefficient um, when you go back to this idea of, of systems uh, theory and you think about, um, you know, one example I like to use a lot is you think about going to the grocery store, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you go to the grocery store, you get your cart and you're ready to check out. And there's a few different things you encounter when you check out, right? One is like you go through the express lane and there's like the long line and then there's like the four different people who are checking people out as you go through, right? Or you go scan the like you know set of uh, set of folks that uh, can check you out if you have more than fifteen items, right? And you go pick the shortest line and then cross your fingers and you watch everybody else go faster than you or or whatever, <laughs> right? And one of the um, you know, but there's actually math behind that. The most efficient way to handle a a big list of things, a large queue, is to have multiple people taking from a single queue, right? You want to have that. That's why the express lanes are set up that way. And so when we do geographic territories, almost what we're saying is like when you go up to the um, to check out at the grocery store, imagine mm-hmm. there was a little clerk there who said, hey, what neighborhood do you live in? Oh, you have to go to this lane over right. here. Right. Um, and you can imagine uh, pretty viscerally, I imagine, if you've if you've waited in line at the grocery store, you can imagine like what that experience is like, both for you and the cashier who happens to uh to have the you know the neighborhood where everybody's shopping that day, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so uh, I think that what we you know one of the things we've identified is that for efficient operations of the operation of these revenue systems, you really have to be thinking more 
like that, more more about the actual throughput of the system as opposed to just trying to allocate things, you know, quote unquote, fairly in the sense of like, well, I'm just going to try to equalize everybody's territories um, and give everybody a patch, right? People like that sense of ownership, but they don't like the outcome where it is impossible to get every patch to be equivalent in terms of its value. Not right. everything is 94104 in San Francisco, right? If right. you're selling to tech companies. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, but that what happens still, I believe, to mm-hmm. a large degree, especially in sort of fast-growing companies, is, I mean, how are you dealing with the issue of, yeah, you're not trying to equalize, but subtly penalizing people, right? And is that favoritism, I guess, in terms of allocation of, of opportunities. Well, and so actually, I think the the territory model actually lends itself more to those types of shenanigans than a model that's maybe built more around, um, I'll call it round robin, but I, I think of it as more of an intelligent round robin that tries to, to optimize allocations based on the capacity that reps have available. So if you think about... Um, you know, being penalized subtly, it could be that, well, you're going to get these zip codes or these territories, right? And that's a management decision versus we've got these inbounds or this account pool or whatever you want to look at. And we're going to allocate those out to uh, reps based on the capacity they have available or possibly other metrics. And then we're going to ensure that that capacity is continually balanced as you go, right? And so to me, that keeps you in that um, that good place and that, that fit and timing quadrant because you can ensure that, um, you know, everybody is sitting uh, by and large with, um, you know, a, a book of accounts that is uh, generally equalized across the amount of, the total amount of value and not just what is, you know, locked up in a particular physical location. Mm. Okay. Well, let's go through the the quadrant. Let's let's define the boxes because I mean I think that yeah, you know, what what you're really leading up to is saying, look, you should actually physically identify using this this quadrant where your opportunities are and use this as a guide. So if people are thinking about a quadrant, four boxes, upper right hand corner is mm-hmm. what you call the good place, uh, borrowing from the TV show. Um, so a good fit. ICP wise, good fit timing wise. Right. Those you stress that's, and I think it's a really important point is that's that's uh, temporal in terms of of timing. Right. Uh, lower right false hope zone, meaning good timing, poor fit. Uh, we certainly see reps spend a lot of time on those. Yeah, I want to spend I want to spend just a minute on the 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 false hope zone because I think the false sure. hope zone is is a really uh, it, it it's pretty insidious. Um, because I've seen a lot in, um, you know, let's say you're, let's say you're in a fairly high velocity sales motion. You're selling like a mid-market SaaS kind of product, right? And, and maybe you're going from, you know, I don't know, a $10,000 sales price to maybe like a twenty-five or $30,000 kind of deal. Right. And, and you're like most companies trying to get that ASP up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, as you get closer and closer to your month or your quarter or whatever, your sales reps are going to come to you and say, Hey, you know, like these guys really want it, but this guy's, you know, we got to, yeah, we got to, they're, they're not quite the perfect fit, but I think if we get them started here, then we're going to, you know, the, the account managers are going to be able to kind of get them to the right place. And then they're, they're, you know, they're going to grow. It's going to be great. Right. right? Um, And so uh, those are the ones that you really have to watch for because the timing is, is right. And everybody is generally, 
you and the customer are probably willing to convince yourself that it's a good fit, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, that's kind of the quadrant where you buy yourself churn in the future yeah. in a lot of cases, right? Um, and so I think that one is something you've got to be really careful about because, you know, if you're a, if you're a sales leader and you got a rep that comes, you're, you're close to your number for the quarter, you get a rep that comes to you and it says, look, these guys want to get across the line, let's just do this. It's really hard to say no, right? Like maybe that's yeah. what gets you over the line. Um, and, and it might not be even the right decision to say no, but you got to recognize the long-term implications of, of saying yes. Well, so this is, let's just pause for a second on that, because this is something that's certainly sitting here on podcasts. It's really easy to say, um, right. <laughs> resist temptation when it mm -hmm. exists, when the difference is between perhaps making your number for the quarter as a manager or not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What guidance do you give to the manager that's you said to your words is buying churn at that point? <laughs> well, uh, so first of all, I, the guy, I would never sit here and tell a manager, don't make your number. Right. Like make your number, um, especially, you know, I spent a lot of my life in startups. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, you may be you may be buying churn um, and we can talk a lot about that uh, if we ever get into it. But um, you're also buying the right to continue existing. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So that's one of the you know, so like you don't really get you don't really afford you can't really afford if you're a startup or you're in a growth stage to um to defer those kinds of things too far into the future, right? You need, you got to get the revenue now and try to figure it out later um, in some cases. So um, yeah, so like you said, it's 100% easy to sit here on a podcast and, and tell somebody like, hey, you got to be cautious about this. And I think what you have to do as an organization is you have to be, you have to recognize this dynamic. And it's one of the reasons why I believe that, um, you know, a CRO or a VP of sales probably needs to own the entire customer lifecycle. They need to own new logos and they need to own retention because mm -hmm. at some point there's got to be a person and it probably can't be the CEO because they're too distracted in the end by other facets of the company. you got to have somebody who owns that entire revenue number across the board. Um, right. Because I think that uh, they need to understand that if they're writing a check today, it's their butt that's going to cash the check tomorrow. Um, and mm -hmm. if you do that, you create at least a little bit of a balancing uh, out of that equation. But I think one of the goals with this quadrant, and instead of we've described the good place, the upper right, good fit, good timing. Mm -hmm. Now we're false hope zone, lower right. Mm -hmm. People picturing this, uh, we're moving. Yeah. Hard to do this on a podcast. Isn't Clock, it? <laughs> doing clockwise. Um, yeah. Good timing, poor fit. Uh, but the goal is that I would, because I've, I wrote about uh, from a different perspective, but I really believe it. It really helps. In my first book, I talk about a quad, creating a quadrant to actually plot your opportunities on the quadrant. Yeah. Is because even within good timing, good fit in the good place, there's a difference between being in the lower left hand corner of that quadrant or the upper right hand corner. So it's, I really urge people as we start talking through this, is think about this visually and then just you know, write simple on a piece of paper yeah. and just put a ink dot where you think this prospect is and be very realistic about it because yeah. this will give you a sense to say, okay, is this worth pursuing at this time? Because the script, I think the scenario you described was, yeah, this one sort of came in the door with like two weeks left to go in the quarter and uh, we were able to move it through the process really quickly. But if they came in the first week of the quarter, you'd probably make a different decision on it. Right. Yep. Uh, 
And if they're still hanging around at the end of the quarter, you might make a yet another different decision. <laughs> that's right. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, but unfortunately, that's one of the things that you want to try to manage as a coach is right. that your sellers are going to keep those around. Yeah. And yeah. they do have the opportunity otherwise to go out and find and work with better opportunities. I think this is what you're talking about is you always have – ideally, you always have choices, right? Unless you're really lean in terms of opportunity. But right. you're always making decisions, right? You know, win rates are such they're relatively low, which means they're going through run, burning through lots of opportunities in a month. Who's to say you made the decision, the right decision up front about which ones to work on? And so I see this as an interesting tool to use as sort of a, I don't say qualification, let's say screening. Right. Uh, regardless of what the BDR, SDR says. If you're an AE, I would create this quadrant and we'll go through the other two uh, parts. And I would be marking everyone saying, okay, for the quarter, this is where these all fell. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, I, I've been, I think about this a lot from a systems perspective, sort of as, you know, sort of looking down at the whole system, but it, it, what's nice about this is it really does give you that ability as an individual rep you can look at it at any level, right? All the way down to your individual rep evaluating exactly what you've got on your plate right now, mm -hmm. all the way up to, um, you know, uh, the CRO trying to think through like, where are we in the, the quarter as a whole? So right. yeah, I think it, it, it's a, it can be really useful to just start dotting this down, right? Um, yeah, so. well, I, I encourage it. So let me just finish the last two quadrants then. Lower left-hand corner, that's the bad place, bad timing, mm -hmm. bad fit. And then in yep. the upper left-hand corner, get back to me. Those are good fit, bad timing. Yeah, and those are, um, you know, I've seen reps spend a lot of time trying to push timing, right? Like you, you, you see they're a good oh, fit, sure. but it, and to some degree that's their job, right? But um, it's really easy to... Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to get happy years around around timing or to, um, you know, otherwise uh, try to, you know, think, well, all right, my POC seems really excited about this, but they're, you know, they're hearing back from, you know, somebody else that, like, this isn't something they can prioritize right now. But I think if I just, you know, give them this information, they can kind of push it up the chain and we can move them forward. And so it... It's a, but it's a better place to be, right? Especially if you're really conscious of how you you manage it, because you know, as long as somebody's a good fit, um, and I think you mentioned account based marketing um, earlier, you know, and I think ABM is is the way that you need to do things. You need to be focused on the account, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, one of the interesting things I think about ABM is that you know, it's it's very much not a transactional way of thinking about the world. You're going to get multiple at-bats with a particular account as they move through, you know, changes in their business and, and that kind of thing. So it's important for you to be talking to folks to a certain degree who are who are not who are good fits, but not necessarily the right timing so that you can get Absolutely. intelligence about what is the right timing so that when that timing comes up, there you are. And so you want your you want some of the behavior to happen in this quadrant for sure. Yeah, I mean, you look at like building your bench of prospects. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to, you got to solve prospects next month and the month after and the month after, right. and you got to have those conversations. You can't wait till they're actually in market to initiate right. those conversations. I mean, if you're doing that, it's great intelligence to have, but mm -hmm. ideally, especially in an account based world, uh, you're talking to those opportunities and you're developing those accounts, assuming your book of business is not too big and you know, right. you address that. 
um, you should be working them all anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, another, yeah, not another reason to really think about the capacity management problem, right? If you've got, uh, and if, if you're overwhelmed by a whole bunch of, um, you know, kind of irrelevant stuff um, as mm-hmm. a rep, then you, you don't have the opportunity to be strategic um, in that regard of like thinking about what's my pipeline going to look like two quarters out um, when these contracts that, you know, this, these companies have with my competitor are going to come up. Right. Yeah, well, I think but a scenario I think about in terms of the quadrant being really useful is, is again, because of more apps like Sixth Sense and others that are doing the in-market signals that they're providing for marketers and for sellers, is that the temptation to think that well, they're in-market and they're identified as one of my accounts, thus they must be a good fit. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's where you... That's <laughs> where so you end up in that uh, in that false hope zone, and you have reps try to convince themselves that they're not in the in the zone of false hope, right? That oh yeah, sure, right. it's a good fit. They're really a good fit, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's why I wanted to spend some time on that one because I think it, it really is a, a great place to to get stuck. Um, and it's oh yeah, it can be found. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because you think one signal equals two. Um, <laughs> well, it's not. Well, it's not the case at all. Right. Well, yeah. so let's. You also mentioned this. You'd written a good article I'd read about um, this whole concept of the fit and timing, which I, I really mm-hmm. liked. And you talked about that sales orgs need to put some guardrails in place to keep reps focused. I was going to change the order of the ones that you had listed and talk about it and lead off with the fact that they have to reduce the size of the, the business book that the sellers are mm-hmm. responsible for. And and I'm a huge believer in the theory of constraints in, in growing sales. And, yep. um, yeah, I don't think that narrowing the number of accounts is a constraint that's mm-hmm. difficult. I think it's a constraint that forces you to do a better job. Yeah. And I, um, well, I'm glad, uh, somehow I thought we might not get through this conversation without bringing up gold rat and theory of constraints and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> so I, I'm, uh, I'm happy that you did, uh, because I think the, the, what gets fascinating for me is when you start thinking about this type of, you know, fit and timing um, and you start breaking down all the all the places in your sales organization where one team or one role or whatever f- feeds another role. When you start connecting these different components together, right, because each one of these um, has all of the same challenges um, at every stage. So. You've got your demand generation, right, mm-hmm. which is trying to do a version of this and make sure that the folks who are, you know, inbound are, are you know, the right kind of folks and that they, right. you know, they have some kind of interest. Then you've got your your BDRs who are doing the same thing. Um, and if you break it down to people who are handling inbound versus people who are handling outbound, you've got your outbound teams who are usually probably kind of inefficiently, but, um, but doggedly going out yes. and trying to find um, folks who are, uh, ideally, they're working with a book that's you think is a reasonable ICP or reasonable fit, right? And then they're trying to go kind of figure out mm-hmm. timing and, and some of those components. Um, and then those folks are usually feeding, you know, some, some closers, uh, if you're in sort of a standard 
I'll say standard, but kind of a, that sort of let's B2B. Call, let's call them sellers. I, I hate the closer thing. Yeah, sellers. Okay, that's fine. Um, in, in general, they're horrible closers, but yeah, good. <laughs> well, that's that's true. Uh, another conversation. But um, and so, but then you you know, and then from there, like they have this same kind of issue, right? And then you get into um, I don't want to say post sales because it's never post sales. It's sort of mm-hmm. after the initial close, right? Right. You think about onboarding, and then you you think about um, you know customer success or what whatever that looks right. like, uh, and you think about your account management function and your renewals. Each one of those has kind of a, a version of this, and then you connect all those pieces together, and you end up with, I think, a very classic kind of theory of constraints type model where you have, you know, someone's output feeding someone's input. And then you you have to look at the throughput of the entire system and start backtracking and trying to find mm-hmm. your your bottlenecks. Right? right. And sometimes that can lead to bottlenecks and kind of kind of strange places, right? Like you you think most of the time, right? Like, well, we're not hitting our number. So what we really need is more leads, right? We need more yeah. inbound. Um, but, you know, if those sellers, uh, you know, if if they're not actually, you know, doing what they need to do, they may be your bottleneck. And I mean, in some cases, oh, yeah. I've, I've actually seen the bottleneck happen at onboarding. Right. Like you you screw up your initial time to value because you're not uh, you're not getting folks onboarded well enough. And that like, well, talking about customers in this case. Yeah. Not getting the customers onboarded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so. Yeah, I mean, the constraints, when you think about that, because everything is interrelated, as you said, the constraint Mm -hmm. could be something as simple as, you know, we're doing a really lousy job of messaging on outbound uh, Mm -hmm. about what we do. And, you know, we're having to suddenly fall into what sounds like a pitch, right? So those Mm -hmm. those first calls aren't very effective. Uh, You're not getting a lot of meetings set up. Or when you get meetings set up, we don't meet expectations subsequent because we did such a poor job messaging beforehand. And, right. and yeah, you start to address them one by one. And, you know, I find, in, especially in early stage companies, as you're trying to grow, is that the constraint is rarely having enough salespeople. It's usually up the chain <laughs> further, right? Right. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is I, I also do see one... Um, you know, you talk to like, okay, so let's say that our, our pitch isn't, or our, um, you know, our talk track isn't working well in that, you know, outbound that we're doing, right? We identify that. Um, what I do see happen a lot, and this again goes back to Gold Rat and Theory of Constraints, is um, a lot of times if you're a CRO and you're tasked, you know, you're tasked with the number, right? The velocity number, the, you know, like depending, you can measure it however you want from a time perspective, but you need to produce a certain number of dollars every quarter, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do. Um, And so uh, a lot of times what happens is, is somebody will pick like a, they'll pick some sort of local measurement and I say local versus global. Right. And they'll say like, well, our BDRs just aren't, you know, they're not, the meeting rate is just not what we need it to be. Right. And they start, you know, going and, and, you know, yelling at those BDRs without a full understanding Mm -hmm. of exactly how that um, impacts the rest of the system. So, I mean, it's kind of the classic theory of constraints. Like I go optimize this thing over here and nothing happens. Well, it's because it wasn't actually your bottleneck. Right. And I, and, and I think one of the challenges that we've got with many of the tools that we have, and this is something we're thinking a lot at Gradient Works about, is we don't have a great way of understanding how opportunities flow through our systems, through our revenue organizations in many cases. When I say opportunities, I don't mean it in the pure like Salesforce sense. I mean, it is like 
opportunity in the sense of these are op opportunities for selling or for expanding an account or whatever. Um, we, we often don't have a great way of modeling um, how these things flow kind of horizontally through our systems. Mm -hmm. And so we end up, um, we end up building things like everyone does like a static quota capacity model, for example, right. that just says like, I'm going to take a bunch of averages and I'm going to plug those in and that's going to spit out how many heads I need. Right? right. But it doesn't really tell you in detail how these things actually flow through the system. And you can never right. really find your bottlenecks that way if you don't understand the interconnectivity. And I think that's a, um, that's a missing piece in the, you know, kind of the toolkit that a CRO needs. Tell me about it. This is one I've been pushing for a long time. Yeah. And it requires a little more work, though a lot of it can be automated these days. But you have to capture the time that people are spending on tasks and mm -hmm. the individual as well as the team. And, you know, the example I give, and because we were doing this all manually back <laughs> a while ago, uh, but startup was with a was now quite a large company, but at the time we were you know, sub hundred million dollars, but still growing quickly and pretty sizable. Is basically if you were a salesperson, we had a, if you had a qualified opportunity, we created a job number for it, and you charge your time to a job number. So oh, if you're wow. on the phone okay. with a customer, you charge time to it. If a SE was Telling to talking to the customer, they charge their time to it. So you knew exactly how much time it took you, both mm -hmm. the individual seller as well as organizationally, to move a deal through from start to finish. And we just measured it initially. I was concerned. Just I wasn't concerned about the post. I was concerned about up to the the order. But yeah, to me that's productivity, right? When you understand you've got a rate of output per units of input. And then you can start actually saying, okay, well, looking across this last year, it seems to be that it takes us, you know, just say, you know, 50 hours of time across the organization on average to bring a million dollar opportunity through the pipeline. Now right. you can start making predictions about your capacity, right? And what you're actually uh, able to achieve if you set your systems up properly. And I, I think one of the, so what's interesting about that, right, is that I think there's two ways of measuring time. Um, one is sort of, I'll call it active time. You're, you're actually doing this thing, right, mm -hmm. during this, this point in time. And then the other, I'll just sort of like call wall time. And, you know, you look at the clock and this is how much time has passed between, you know, uh, point A and point B, right? And so sure. one of the things that uh, I think is important here is um, if you only are looking at sort of those time slices, and you're not thinking about the actual kind of wall clock time of how long it takes to get from point A to point B, you're going to miss um, the, the points at which you have latency that are, that are dragging down your throughput, right? So like the, where people aren't responding to things or where, um, you know, your rep is working on a, another opportunity. And so there's an opportunity cost to that, right? Um, and sure. so. I think you've got to you've got to be looking at, at all of those things, and again, in the end, if you roll it up to the CRO, right, you're, you've you've got ninety days to go get however many millions of dollars you're supposed to get, right, um, and uh, and that's that's kind of how you're you're measured and how people think about what you're supposed to do, right, and so um, as you get down to those granular kind of active time slices, I think you um, uh, you're going to miss some of the latencies that that happen in the system.
Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. But I mean, on the other hand, though, at least you're starting at a point where you're saying, look, when you're at the time that you have control over, when you're actually doing mm -hmm. something, right? What does it produce? Right. Right. And I think that's that's super important for sure. I mean, we could we could. I think we'd be better off from one perspective to say, um, geez, as sellers, mm -hmm. uh, let's say take your BDR time as, you know, okay, mm -hmm. we've got activity metrics we want them to hit. But I would contend that if we found a way to analyze to say, look, these calls don't ever lead to a, some, to an outcome, right? A productive right. outcome. Therefore, they're not productive calls, how do we minimize the number of calls that don't lead to a productive output? I mean, I, right. I draw the factory analogy, right? I mean, if, mm -hmm. if, if uh, and more, this is not about BDR per se, but in sales in general, is, you know, if you have a factory and you're, you have the capability of producing, you know, 100 widgets an hour, but you only produce, you produce 80, but 20 of them need to be reworked before they can go back out again. Mm -hmm. What's your productivity? It's not, 100, it's not 80, it's 60. Yet, people are looking at productivity for BDRs and saying, well, 50 calls a day or whatever, that's their productivity. And I would say, well, that's not their productivity, that's just the activity. Let's now start looking right. at productivity. And yeah, I know it's a bridge too far for many people, but we're starting to have the data available. You know, the other performance-based professions, and I always default to talking about soccer, because that's Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can use the data to analyze these things right. to a much greater degree than we are, and we have a lot of a lot of information there that we're just not surfacing. Yeah, and I um, unfortunately uh, I can't speak to soccer, but I'm a, a basketball stats kind of person, and the yeah. uh, you know the performance the the level of detail that we've we've started to get to over the past uh, few years in terms of thinking about what actually produces outcomes um, right. is is really fascinating. Um, and I think, but what, one of the things that I think is interesting about that, you mentioned like doing some of this by hand or, or yeah. then, you know, being able to, to start tracking these things um, via, you know, the system that you were using before, you know, I, I kind of feel like um, I'm going to use a term. I think that you don't, uh, you don't love, which is modern sales, um, but uh, uh, I'm going to, but here's what I think modern sales actually is. And I actually yeah. view that the sales, the, the revenue organizations we have today are undergoing a transformation similar to sure. what manufacturing organizations underwent in the seventies and eighties with lean manufacturing. I think what we're seeing is, the qualitative changes that happen when technology reaches a certain threshold, um, that when you have a, a technology-enabled system, like we were talking about before, not, not the tech system, but the people mm -hmm. and the process and the technology all working together, when you get to a certain threshold of the amount of data, the interconnectedness of the data, how the data how the systems actually um, are utilized on a day-to-day -day basis to do the job, you start to to be able to control things in a in a really different way. You know, you go to like the Toyota production system, right? Was started being developed based off the Ford systems in the in the 30s, yeah. and so they they did it very manually. But eventually, when you get into the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden. Um, you get into kind of like the goal time frame, right? You, you start to be able to do these things with computers, right? right. And so you start to be able to manage um, workflows throughout the entire system. The machines start to give you data. So you can start building out like simulations of how those machines are going to work with, you know, sure. uh, work in the system. I think that we've reached a level of, of 
technological, you know, technology underpinnings of the sales function, the revenue function, that it actually is starting to look a lot like those kinds of inflection points um, for, for manufacturing. And so you can start to think a lot more about how does, how do you utilize that technology layer to actually impact the behavior of the system as a whole versus just this sort of a glorified like data collection mechanism? I think that's the desired outcome. I, yeah. My belief is we're not anywhere close to that yet. Um, right. But we have the tools and stuff in place to, to begin to do that. Um, right. Because, I mean, I just, and I unfortunately we're running out of time here, but I mean, I just leave it with the thought because I've asked a number of people this from different walks and, you know, from academia and other places is, you know, go back to this measure of, that I talked about before is, you know, revenue generated per hour of selling time. Right is there's no data that exists that I've seen or that anybody else has seen that I've asked that says, huh, given the explosion of technology into sales over the last 10, 20 years, that that number has changed over the, that period of time. Right. So, and I think that's, I think that's what we got to be aiming for is that, yeah, we have all the, this technology. Now let's use it in a way so that when people are actually engaged with the buyer, they can help the buyer, they can be more effective and help the buyer make their decisions better and so on, so that that number actually improves. And it ideally should improve, right? So, And I do wonder, though, are we measuring, and I know we're about to run out of time here, but yeah. I, I think if you think about it from a global systems level as opposed to a local optimization level, I think there's probably some evidence that the, um, the use of technology has enabled us to produce more revenue at the systems level when you look at the number of um, I mean the number of massive companies with large valuations and, and really and steadily wow. increase, increasing revenues right I, but I you know it's hard to track that back to yeah. how much of that is, is driven by you know technology change versus market size um, so it's not an easy answer right yeah we could we it'd be fun to talk about that but we'll have to do it another time because yeah um, I think it's a topic worth discussing because I think it's this is this is the way that we measure and should be measuring sales going forward as opposed to uh, unit-based quotas and things we do today. So, a uh, whole different discussion. So, anyway, hey, yes. it's, it's been a yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this this has been fun. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I would uh, I'd suggest uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm Hayes Perfect. Davis on LinkedIn. Easy to easy to find me. Perfect. All right, Hayes. Look forward to doing it again. All right. Sounds great. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Hayes Davis, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>